This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My name is Michael McFall. I am the Deputy Director of FSI and the Director of the Center on Democracy, Development, and Rule of Law within FSI. I'm also in the Department of Political Science and the Hoover Institution. Um, uh, my colleagues here, um, Catherine Stoner Weiss, who's the Associate Director at CDDRL, David Patel, who is a visiting scholar with us at CDDRL this fall, who will be uh, starting as a uh, professor at uh, Cornell in the fall, and Abbas Malani, who has also many hats, but among uh, many, the two most important for me is he's the Director of Iranian Studies here at Stanford and also a fellow at the Hoover Institution where we work together on the Iran Democracy Project. Um, we don't have time to do justice to this topic in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so let me say by way of advertising that this is a, a academic subject, or that maybe that's not the right word, a, uh, uh, a subject of inquiry at the center. Uh, there's been a lot of rhetoric uh, recently about democracy promotion. When the president speaks, he likes to use the word liberty and freedom. Um, and yet it is surprising, shockingly surprising, that when we look at the literature on the study of democracy promotion, and to answer the question, can we promote democracy as a country, or can anyone uh, on the outside promote democracy, it turns out that there's really not much study that's been done of this at all. In my opinion, it's shockingly so. Uh, because you can't answer the should we question if you don't have an answer to the can we question. And um, I think throughout history we see that without trying to look at this systematically, we're going to make making the same kinds of mistakes over and over and over. I have a whole lecture uh, prepared here, which I'm going to whiz through uh, and just highlight a few on the should we part. Uh, I also have a whole lecture on the can we part. In fact, I could talk the whole time if my voice <laughs> stayed up, and just these, I could let these folks ask questions, but that wouldn't be very interesting. Um, what I'm going to do is just briefly, very, very quickly, say a few words about the should we. But what we really want to focus on in our very limited time is the can we. And we deliberately chose three of the hardest places uh, on the planet today where we have been involved in one way or another of trying to attempt to uh, bring about some kind of political change internally. That is Soviet Union and then Russia, and that's what uh, 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 Professor Stoner Weiss will start with. We'll then move to uh, uh, Iraq. Can I call you Professor yet? Professor Patel? I don't even have a PhD. All right, all right. <laughs> a little too soon. All right, it's Mr. Patel. Uh, soon to be Professor Patel. And then we'll end with Professor Milani on Iran, which is also ongoing. Now, on the should we. Um, as I, as I said, I'm going to just whip through these and I can send them. I'm, I want to kind of uh, tease you with a, a longer talk and I can send you them or you can invite me to come and I'll come to your town and speak about these. Um, right now, I would just say as an empirical point that the idea that we should be doing this at all is a highly contested question and I think rightfully so given the results so far. Uh, I also want to remind you that this is not a debate that began with George W. Bush. It actually began with our founding fathers. And if you go back and read what they said about these things, particularly support for the French Revolution, this is a really, really old debate between two big classic schools of thought. 
realism on the one hand, uh, Wilsonian liberalism on the other hand. And I'm, I'm not going to go through these uh, because I want to get to the Kenway part. I, I just do want to say that today these, these folks are in the ascendancy, both in the academia, uh, within the Bush administration, and, and uh, writing more generally about a return to realism. I want to say a few words about why I think that's short-sighted in a minute. I just want to note that the language is really awful. If you read the, the uh, current issue of Newsweek, for instance, John Meekham, a, a colleague of mine, somebody I know, he contrasts realism with ideologues. Uh, and and the, the, those that, that argue for should we, I think, are, are heavily burdened, A, by the language, and B, by the, the record of the last six years. Uh, I think it's a lot more complex than that, and if I had more time, I would spell out for you why realism is also an ideology, and in my, uh, my opinion, a rather corrupt moral one. Uh, and and uh, the happy medium is probably somewhere in between, but we're not going to have a theoretical discussion. I'm going to assume you know what those things are. Uh, I want to also emphasize that the debate between those that think we should promote democracy and those that think we should not is not a debate between Republicans and Democrats. It never has been. My prediction is that it is not, and most certainly in the lead up to 2008, in both of these parties, this debate is real and contentious. Um, and it's never really a clean debate. It's between administrations, within administrations, between bureaucracies, and within individuals. Uh, Bush and Cheney themselves, I think, uh, wake up one day being realists and Wilsonian liberals the next. Never a high priority, let's be honest. Um, and now for my should we, in very soundbite form. Catherine, you actually should be keeping time on me because I'm going to keep it on you. Um, uh, let me just give you three questions philosophically and materially and then for our security interests, why I think we have an interest in doing it. And then we'll turn to the can we discussion about the real world. On the moral question, I'm with this gentleman. Uh, uh, I defy you to tell me why he was wrong. Uh, I think when you look at uh, governance questions, democracies are better at protecting basic human rights constraining the power of predatory states. They don't commit genocide, they don't starve their people, and they're better at representing the will of the people than any other government that's been tried before. Uh, they also don't fight each other, they're also more stable, less prone to coups, they have mechanisms for transferring power. Um, this is a longer debate, which I'm gonna skip over and, and quickly, but the, the, the sound bite, the bottom line, the takeaway is that if you learned 20 years ago that autocracies are better at growth than democracies, you're wrong. Uh, it's, it's much more complicated than that. And, and for every China in the data set of autocracies that are growing fast, there is an Angola that has been autocratic for 30 years and hasn't grown at all. And when you put it in the aggregate, uh, democracies tend to grow at about the same rate as autocracies. The difference is that autocracies grow at, at a much more varied rate than democracies. So the democracies are the slow and steady uh, growth. Uh, they're the tortoises, and at steady rates, and autocracies grow uh, on both sides of, that, uh, of the line. <clears throat> and we could talk about that if we had more time. I'm not going to. The final part of the moral reason is that people want democracy. Uh, this is a hard slide to read, but they're just empirically, when you ask people, would you rather vote for your leaders or have your leaders dictate how they should rule? It's a no-brainer when you ask Churchill's question. That's what this uh, data here is. Uh, they agree with Churchill. Um, and 
just to remind you that uh, the the you know just the democracy is a rather new phenomenon growing at a fantastic rate uh just 12 democracies in 1942 here's the rates now uh where free or full consolidated democracies partly free or the in between you see we've gone from 41 to 89 in short 3 decades I think there are economic reasons as well why the United States has a, an interest in democracy. Democracies open up, and that correlation, we as the most open economy in the world, we benefit from that, but I'm going to skip that for now and just quickly say two words about the security reasons from the past. Um, and just to remind you, all of our enemies have always been dictators. Uh, we've never been attacked uh, by a democracy. We could argue about a few cases and talk about the War of 1812 if you want, but we're not going. Yeah, yeah, Catherine's Canadian, so I always have to be careful, careful about that. that particular war that they allegedly won, I guess is what they teach up there in the North. They did burn the White House, uh, but I don't think they were a, 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 a democracy at the time. Um, okay, all right, let's leave that one for now. Um, likewise, the transformation of autocracies have made us safer. I just think that's an empirical fact from the 21st century, uh, from the 20th century. Uh, and even Russia, which we're going to talk in detail about, um, is a country that we worry less, not because Russia is any weaker today. Russia is still the only country in the world that can obliterate our country overnight because of the nuclear weapons that they have. None of these other places, Iran, North Korea, even the Chinese, none of them can do it. Uh, but my children are not doing the kinds of drills that earlier speakers were talking about that I also did uh, as a kid in Montana. We did them in Montana not to save the people but to save the ICBMs, uh, which are, were more prevalent and more important to national security at the time. But even in a country like Russia, I would argue it's not because they become weaker, as, a, as the realist argument would be, but because it's a different kind of regime there and therefore that threat has been reduced. And then I would just remind you about the false promise of, of going back to so-called realism. Uh, autocrats are not long-term allies. They change their minds rather quickly. They don't know how to stay in power very well. Shah was a great ally for what, 27 years, Abbas? Really, really bad ally, that 20, 30, huh? 37. 37 if you go all the way back, yeah. Not so good that 38th year. Um, uh, this notion that maintaining balance of power between places is, is going to be easier than, than actually having regimes that are trying to integrate into the world democratic and capitalist system, I also think uh, we forget the millions of lives that were lost in the name of doing that. Think of Iran and Iraq war. When I was in Iran, uh, the first thing that came up in every security question was, why did you ally with that bastard who gassed our people? And, and it's a hard question. In the name, we did it in the name of realism and balance of power politics, uh, but has had really negative uh, repercussions in both of those two countries where we are playing that role. And the Cold War was not a Cold War, folks. Millions of people died in that war, fighting in the name of so-called maintaining the status quo, including Americans, including Russians. And we'll skip the embarrassing folks. Now, this is an analogy based on the 20th century. And in the long run, I can do, say all these things about how I believe a democratic Iran would be our greatest ally in the Middle East. I think Abbas will say more about that. Why a, a democratic North Korea would be a democratic Korea and therefore would eliminate that threat. In the long run, notice I have to keep using that phrase, uh, democracy in the Middle East will do the same things in that region that it did in Europe. 
And I would just remind you when you say that it can't be done, there's enough gray and balding heads in this room that you know. When I do this in our class, I have to remind people. But remember, the most uh, bloody and brutal place in the history of the planet ever was Europe. And in 1946, after killing millions and millions and millions of people, uh, there were autocracies, failed states, democracies in that region, and a whole lot of American troops and Soviet troops to try to prevent it from happening again. And we just remind you, the miracle of the last five decades has been the expansion of democracy and the elimination of those threats that one, at one time seemed irreconcilable. So when you're gonna tell me that the Palestinians and Israelis have been fighting for time immoral, I'll quote you back the figures that where Germans and French killed each other or when Catholics and Protestants killed each other on that other continent. Um, that's all in the long run. And then I think I'm gonna just skip through these. These are arguments you've heard before. But the real problem is what about in the short run? Uh, about bringing radicals to power on the one hand, weakening states on the other, and to also remind that, of course, this is not a silver bullet to solve the, the terrorist threat anywhere. I grew up an hour from one of these gentlemen, the Unabomber, who for 20 years lived in the same place I did, same institutions, same beautiful country of Montana, and he ended up doing very different things with his time, uh, having grown up in the same place. Uh, he did go to Berkeley, which was a big problem, uh, and not Stanford, but everything else was equal. But the, yes, that's the, very, that's the one variable. But the question now, and I want to turn now to the, our experts, is I think that the case can be made theoretically and historically that we have gained enormously from the advance of democracy around the world in the last 200 years. The real empirical question is can we do anything about it? Do we have the tools, diplo diplomatic, institutional, uh, uh, or uh, otherwise, to actually do any good in terms of the advance of democracy. And to look at that in detail, we're gonna march through very quickly three really tough cases, Russia, Iraq, and Iran. Catherine. Okay, thanks, Mike. <laughs> Can you switch presentations? Yeah. This will be a test of your technological capabilities. Keep talking. Okay. Yes. He's not a professor, but he knows how to use slides. So just go to, go to the bottom. That's not me. Go to the very bottom. Yep, there, there. There you go. Then press the uh, little easel at the bottom. Oh, that'll do it. Great. Okay. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm going to start with a case that we have. Pardon my voice. We have a, a CDRL. We seem to be having a cold, um, the entire center. But um, I'm going to talk about a case that has, um, I think, fallen out of the headlines. Um, Russia was obviously very much in the headlines in the 1990s, and that's when the, the bulk of uh, democracy assistance uh, was really most active. Interest has really, I think, fallen off over the last six years or so. Um, one of the reasons, I think, is because our, our president looked into the president of Russia's eyes, saw his soul, uh, declared him a friend, and um, we assumed Russia was done. And it turns out Russia's not done. Russia's not a consolidated democracy. Uh, it's sort of a weakly consolidated uh, authoritarian state. Um, but Russia is obviously still very important to the United States uh, and to the rest of the world. It should be a better strategic partner um, than it is to the United States, um, arguably. Uh, but it still rates very highly uh, for the United States, not only because of the nuclear weapons that it has and that we've heard about earlier today, 
Um, but because of the potential influence it can have uh, in situations like that of North Korea and its nuclear ambitions, as well as in Iran and possibly even in Iraq, where it's been a bit of a spoiler um, in terms of uh, being attached to oil interests there. Um, Russia rates so high with President Bush that he's even willing to do a quick one-hour stopover, which he did yesterday, to say hello to his friend Vladimir and have a few photos taken um, in advance of their meeting on Sunday. Um, the, um, oh, I guess I should move this. Let's see if that works. Oh, great. As Mike mentioned, just to give you a sort of a larger picture of, of U.S. democracy promotion efforts, $1.4 billion, uh, billion has been spent in democracy assistance as of fiscal year 2005. There are a ton of U.S. government institutions involved at CDDRL. We frequently get called by private agencies uh, who are in the Beltway in Washington wanting to use the Stanford name uh, in order to gain contracts from USAID to do various things uh, in terms of building civil society uh, in different parts of the world, in particular Russia um, and Eastern Europe. Uh, but there hasn't been a ton of success in this regard. Um, in a second, I'll show you what's happened in Russia. Um, but <coughs> Russia's basically moved from sort of an unconsolidated democracy under Boris Yeltsin um, to, as I mentioned, an unconsolidated authoritarian state um, under Vladimir Putin. And the question is, why has this happened? And what role uh, has the U.S. Uh, and Europe, ha have they played in um, sort of the failure of democracy there? So, as I mentioned, unconsolidated, and I should mention here, unstable, very unstable democracy under Yeltsin, despite the fact that he's dancing here, uh, and that someone asked me if that was me uh, dancing <laughs> next to him. <coughs> it's not. Um, that's that's uh, President Yeltsin dancing just before he had uh, triple bypass surgery um, in um, the summer of um, 1996. And um, it's actually, I think the picture's kind of a good metaphor because he, it, he governed Russia in fits and starts when he was Russia's first president. He was very, very successful at bringing down communist institutions. Um, and that was really his declared purpose as president. He was good at that, but he wasn't very good at building democratic institutions. Um, there was a failed attempt at shock therapy. A lot of people blame, actually, um, uh, American economists uh, for the failure of uh, Russian economic reform. But in fact, shock therapy, and as sort of emblematic of the Washington consensus on, uh, on reforming economies, that is privatizing um, um, in particular and liberalizing the economy, um, shock therapy actually wasn't implemented in Russia. So you can blame a lot of uh, American economists for a lot of things, and here we frequently do, but uh, in this case, you can't really say that it's the fault of shock therapy that the Russian economy was in such a shambles in the 19. 90s um, because it's, it's, uh, it was a failed attempt at even trying to implement shock therapy because there were so many political forces uh, aligned against this kind of uh, macroeconomic reform. But nonetheless, um, probably ill-conceived privatization policies where valuable state assets were effectively given away um, and the state didn't gain very much from uh, the proceeds of privatization and disillusionment with the instability of Russian democracy um, one of the reasons I wanted to use Yeltsin here uh, in this picture of Yeltsin is because at times he was a tremendously uh, great leader for Russia, and at other times he was a tremendous failure. Um, and uh, I think he really he governed Russia, obviously, uh, in a very uh, um, unstable and uneven way, and um, this brought on his successor, uh, Vladimir Putin. I like that picture 
a friend of mine took it actually, but he looks sort of evil. Uh, that's him, he's coming out of voting for the first time. Um, and when Putin came in following Yeltsin's uh, unanticipated resignation in December of 1999, um, we, he declared that he would, he would install a dictatorship of law in Russia, and this was in direct response to the instability of the Yeltsin era. And many of us wondered, did he mean dictatorship of law or just a plain old dictatorship? But I think in initially, uh, people were pleasantly surprised, analysts inside and outside of Russia, in the sense that this was a man who was smart, he showed up for work, he was a teetotaler, uh, in contrast to his predecessor, uh, he knew the issues, um, he could uh, go toe-to-toe -to -toe with American presidents on trade policy, um, and um, was a good, strong leader for Russia. The problem is um, that he has absolutely no investment in democracy. Um, he has no background in democracy, and if you and, and he was relatively unknown as a leader. He's never actually led um, um, a uh, an organization in this way. Um, he briefly led the uh, successor to the KGB, um, but he he is not. And one of his advisors was here. Former advisors were here recently. He said he's not really. He's not a leader, um, and so he ta has to take a lot of uh, advice from from conflicting. Uh, individuals within his administration. That's actually not a picture you get of him. If you read the Russian media, he controls the Russian media, his administration does, so not surprisingly, you don't see him as a, at all a conflicted leader um, because he's gradually taking control over um, instruments of uh, democracy, including the media, not the least of which is the media. Um, he's introduced over the last six years a form, first we called it managed democracy, now they call it sovereign democracy, uh, which is a way of saying that Russia's democracy is really different from everybody else's. Um, and Russia's democracy means that they don't have uh, an open media. Um, it's not clear how free and fair elections are in uh, Russia. Uh, lots of people um, can run, but not everybody can run, and um, there are frequently suspicious uh, cancellations of attempted registration uh, of candidates in uh, elections, both at the parliamentary level, the federal parliamentary level, um, and the regional level um, in Russia. Um, just a little bit more background on Putin. We knew so little about him when he was uh, appointed first um, prime minister and then acting president. He was ultimately elected, as most of you will know, um, in, um, in March of 2000. Um, he was re-elected in 2004, and technically he's up for election again in 2008. Notice I said technically. Uh, we're all waiting to see uh, whether he actually uh, runs for election or not, uh, or whether he just continues in, role in, in his role as president. Um, he, um, when Yeltsin first tapped him um, to be president, he, he reports that uh, he was very, very hesitant to become um, president of Russia, um, saying that he didn't like elections, didn't like to run in them. And I'm, here's a direct quote. I don't like election campaigns. I really don't like them. I don't know how to run them, and I don't like them. <laughs> Nonetheless, without an economic plan or presenting any kind of economic program, he won with 52% of the vote. Again, that's partly from manipulating um, the media. But you can see over the last six years what's happened. These are Freedom House scores in Russia. <laughs> so the higher the score here, uh, the less free you are. So here are not re countries, but free countries. Uh, in, this is in Eastern Europe in the former Soviet Union, partly free. This is where Russia was here until 2005. Under Putin, it's jumped here to not free. Um, we can talk more about what that means exactly. So, what's happened? Is Russia lost? 
Um, well, it faces all of these challenges, which I don't have time to go through exactly here, but obviously Russia has a lot of oil. Uh, oil doesn't generally breed democracy. It tends to breed uh, weak states and uh, high degrees of inequality. Um, and so it has all of those things. It has very poorly institutionalized um, um, state more generally, has um, a little bit of trouble taxing and, and spending. Um, so it's moved from being demo a democracy without Democrats under Yeltsin really to authoritarianism um, without authority, I think. So did we fail in promoting democracy? Did the US lose Russia? No, I don't think we can actually take uh, credit or blame for that. There are a lot of Russian policymakers and a lot of private interests in Russia who can be blamed um, for that. Um, there were, however, since the early 1990s, a, a virtual army mm -hmm. of democracy assistance organizations working particularly in the area of civil society. And expectations were very high in the early 1990s that this would be a relatively easy thing. But of course, uh, it's, it's not an easy thing anywhere, and it's certainly uh, a very difficult thing to try and encourage civil society growth um, in what is the largest landmass in, in the world. And I think people forget that as well. Size here really does matter. Russia spans uh, 11 time zones. And democracy assistance, though, could have probably been better. Um, frequently, uh, international organizations, uh, one I just visited recently in Vienna, the OSCE, for example, tended to ignore um, superficial compliance to uh, sort of democratic norms and, and not really taking into account full compliance. The question also, and this is something I know Mike would raise if he had more time, so I'll raise it for him, which is who does democratizing in the United States? Um, frequently, it's people in their mid-20s to late-20s. Um, I was one of them in 1990, just for the full disclosure. And there's, there's nothing wrong with being young, of course. That's great. <laughs> they have, uh, I was young once, too. They have a lot uh, of energy, but the, the problem is that I think that there's not a ton of training and not a lot of money goes into training, and frequently they're not taken seriously on the ground by the people they're supposed to be helping because they don't have a lot of credibility. They haven't had a lot of life experience yet, so that's one problem. Another is we're not really spending enough. There's a common misconception that we spent a ton on democracy promotion um, in Russia. In fact, we really only spent about um, $15 million between 1995 and um, 2000, which is not a lot of money. Um, there's a lot of lack, lack of coordination among agencies, people tripping over one another, but most importantly, a lack of political will in the domestic arena, and this is where I think the Russians themselves can be blamed and we can't um, take much credit. Okay, I see, yep, one minute to go. Um, but the task really shouldn't be underestimated. Mistakes were made, uh, as McNamara said, um, but um, let's remember Russia's a huge country, no democratic history, and we're trying to carry out here simultaneous economic and political reforms. Uh, which is a, a tall order, and I can't resist, I always put in a map of Russia, there it is, look at the size of it, huge, huge country, just a little bigger than Canada. Uh, um, but all this to say we shouldn't give up. We can learn from what's worked in other places. Um, Serbia, Ukraine, and Georgia, of course, in, in the last six years have all had democratic breakthroughs, um, and I think um, there was, there's some evidence of success in, in terms of uh, U.S. involvement and um, uh, European involvement in all three places, uh, including bi building civil society organizations. I think we can continue to invest there. Um, and um, the, we've, we found that the role of independent media really mattered a lot in all three of those cases. So we really, I think, when we put m money into Russia, even a little bit that we are putting into it now, we should focus on that, election monitoring, the media, and civil society organizations all have, all have shown to be quite effective when the moment comes, when domestic forces are ready to democratize. And then finally, I'll just put this in to generate some controversy. We can re reconsider Russian membership in the G8. 
World Trade Organization, I said, okay, that's okay because trade is generally good for forcing openness of economies, but also perhaps eventually political openness. Um, but um, the G8, it strikes me as farcical that Russia is there. So I'll, I'll end with that. Thank you, Catherine. <clears throat> On to another hard case, Iraq. I think I'm going to get up and dance around. Oh, here, you want the, here's the clicker. Thank you. Like Mike said, I'm actually a PhD student, a pre-doctoral fellow at CDRL. So first I wanted to thank Mike and uh, Catherine for bringing me to CDRL. It's been a wonderful place to continue my work. It's been a fantastic research for me. But everyone in this room could give a talk about lessons we can learn about democracy promotion from Iraq. Everyone knows it. The question is, what, how much confidence do we have that we're interpreting Iraq and what's happened in Iraq the right way? So what I'm going to do is not talk much about democracy. I'm going to talk about Iraq. Thank you. Then a series of puzzles about why Iraq looks the way it does today. Why is a cohesive national identity for Shiites emerged in Iraq, where they're able to coordinate nationally on big issues like constitutional issues on the elections, while Sunni Arabs remain highly divided, fractured? Why has Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani and Muqtada Sadr, two clerics who we didn't anticipate being important after the war, emerging as Iraq's most prominent political entrepreneurs? Instead of ritually endowed secularists or party leaders who were getting lots of democracy support, not just democracy support, support from all sorts of other countries and groups. Why do these two clerics emerge as the key players? In general, why has religious identity, sectarian identity become so important for Iraq for all sorts of activities? rather than class or other sectarian secular identities, which historically have been much more important in Iraq. Usually when people talk about this, they, they, they blame the United States. They say it was US enshrining a sectarian identity in the governing councils, or other meddling, either from Iran or Salafis in the Gulf, or the apocalypse theory of Iraq, somehow the release of, removal of Saddam released these primordial historical divisions. Warren Christopher this morning said uh, religious, religious tensions and hatreds were unleashed. Or they'd say it has something to do with Iraqi culture, or, or Arab culture, or Islamic culture. It has to do with doctrine, or piety, or charismatic or traditional authority. Instead, I'm going to make a different argument, one rooted in, in information theory. And what I'm saying is, post-invasion, Iraqis needed to cooperate with their neighbors on all sorts of issues. When the state collapsed, trash collection disappeared, security disappeared. Locally, Iraqis had to coordinate with other Iraqis to provide public goods and security. <laughs> Nationally, they had to coordinate on new issues such as electoral strategies and con maybe I don't want you recording this. <laughs> Nationally, they had to coordinate with other Iraqis on big issues. In order to do this, they had to have shared expectations about how other Iraqis would behave. But there's no history in Iraq because of the nature of Saddam's regime on how you do this, on how you coordinate with other people, where you get the information about what other Iraqis will do. My argument is that Muslim religious leaders, especially Friday mosque preachers, control the most effective way for Iraqis to know what other Iraqis know. By shaping these messages in the common in, in mosques, preachers are able to create common knowledge within catchment areas of individual Friday mosques in both Sunni and Shiite areas, which led to the emergence of local orders around these mosques. Nationally, Shiite ayatollahs, because of the hierarchical nature of the Shiite clergy, could coordinate messages across mosque catchment areas, so Shiites know what other Shiites know living far away. Sunni clerics haven't been able to do this. So nationally, Shiites are able to coordinate. Locally, Sunnis 
only know what their neighbors know. The next mosque catchment area, the next neighborhood, they don't know, which is why the Sunnis are so divided, why they can't agree on when they'll participate in the political process, and why the insurgency is so hard to defeat, because it varies not only between cities, but even within cities. So like I said, Iraqi society, because of the way Saddam ruled Iraq, Iraqis were afraid to associate with a lot of other Iraqis. Guilt was oftentimes assumed by, uh, by association. So the social network structure and the, the way Iraqis interacted, they don't know what their neighbors know about all sorts of things. There's a shared history in Iraq. From, there's parliamentary history from the monarch, monarchical period. And there's a history clearly of uh, uprising against occupation from the 1920s. But Iraqis don't know what other Iraqis know about this history, how other Iraqis will interpret it, and when they want to apply it because of the way the Saddam's Ba'ath regime and, uh, took this up and basically cast it all for their propaganda purposes. After the war, though, Friday sermons, uh, all adult Muslim men, of course, have to come together once a week on Friday afternoon, only Muslim men, I should say, in, in Iraq and listen to a preacher. In post-war Iraq, these preachers took it upon themselves to deal with local, local issues. They got up and said, we've got lots of priorities in our community. Here's how we're going to prioritize them. Here how, here's how we're going to deal with them. And locally, they were able to coordinate people because they were the first on the scenes. They were better informed about, how Iraqi, about the problems Iraqis faced. Simple things like trash collection, like people running out in the middle of their streets shooting guns off, which you laugh, but it's kind of important. These weekly Friday gatherings in the mosque were effective venues for Iraqis to know what other Iraqis knew. And these preachers, oftentimes who didn't have a lot of worldly knowledge and weren't being coordinated by anyone else, beat out these civil society organizations that were just getting off the ground. They beat out the NGOs, Mercy Corps, these 20-year-olds that were coming in and trying to help build this. They were on the ground in ways that the American military couldn't be. And you saw after they, after they successfully dealt with simple issues like trash collection, how you deal with looting, Iraqis naturally continued to look to them to solve other problems. And like I said, there wasn't a vacuum. This is the idea. There was a vacuum in post-war Iraq, and Iraqis rushed to the mosque. There wasn't a vacuum. If anything, there were too many voices, too many opinions. The clerics, though, were the only ones who had the ability to tell Iraqis messages in ways that Iraqis knew what other Iraqis knew and could coordinate. And these solutions that they came up with select, reflect the preferences of the people disseminating them. In other words, the clergy. And the overarching substantive norm they were encouraging was to be a good Muslim. And the specific norms varied around that. But like I said, this was uncoordinated at this point. So these local orders were emerging right around Sunni and Shiite mosques. And I should say, I, I did field work in Iraq for eight months in late 2003, 2004. I was living out with an Iraqi family. So a lot of this is based on data I collected when I was there and my own participation in these sermons and, and activities. Now everyone says, what's the difference between a Sunni and Shia? And they'll start talking about the history, what happened after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. One of the most important differences is the structure of the clergy. The Shiite clergy is very hierarchical. You have ayatollahs sitting at the top, and they have representatives in all the major cities who then have Friday sermons. And it, there's very, this very distinct hierarchy. So the guy sitting at the top can issue messages down, and those messages will repeat in all the different mosques. Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani and Muqtada Sadr happen to control Iraq's two largest such networks. And they use this. After they saw local preachers coordinating people, they began to coordinate messages across mosques. And this allowed them to beat out lots of other Shiite actors who were trying to coordinate, who were trying to mobilize people, like, this, like Skiri, like Dawa, like all the other parties you've heard a lot about. And this means that a Shia going to a mosque in, in Basra on Friday knows what Shia sitting in Kufa or in Baghdad or in Kut or Amara are hearing, the messages they're hearing about big issues, constitutional issues, about federalism, things that Iraqis didn't know what other Iraqis thought about. 
The Sunni clergy, on the other hand, is very, there, there, there's almost no hierarchy, which is why you get people with engineering backgrounds like Osama bin Laden issuing fatwas. There's no clear hierarchy, and what little hierarchy existed because of the state, the Ministry of Religious Endowments in Iraq was abolished after the war. There was a very weak diwan to oversee them. And the most successful post-war Sunni Arab political organizations were things like the Association, oh, I just turned this off. Uh, the Association of Muslim Scholars, or uh, uh, Adnan Delamy, who controlled the Waqf, who basically mimicked what the Shias had, the hierarchy they had, and tried through money and patronage to coordinate messages across mosques. Instead, the Sunni Arab clergy were independent. There were many status equals, and the messages they gave were only local. There was no national coordination. Sistani, though, coordinated the Shias on all sorts of issues to frustrate U.S. plans. They changed, the Bremer and the U.S. government was constantly changing their plans, and Larry Diamond, I'm sure, talks about this and has a lot of experience on this, changing the caucus plans and then it, it, things that came down in the interim constitution. Sunni clerics, on the other hand, can't coordinate messages across mosques. So the collective action remains local. They can't, they can't coordinate and bargain successfully over big things like a constitutional writing process. They can't extract the demands from the Shia the way they need to in order to, have, uh, to be able to get credible commitments from them that they can preserve their rights in the future. And there's really no sense still what has to be done for the Sunni Arabs to lay down their arms and to come on board with the political process. Other elites and other groups that we're trying, that we think of in a democracy, all these newspapers that were emerging, all these nascent political organizations, they didn't have the ability to create the same information, information in ways that Iraqis knew what other Iraqis knew. And what you ended up seeing were previously secular politicians like Ahmed Chalabi turning to Islam because they know the clerics like Sistani are looking over their shoulder and that they have to follow their messages and get on board with their program to have any influence whatsoever. The United States failed in Iraq, or has failed up until this point in Iraq, because even the coalition provisional authority didn't have this ability to coordinate messages in ways that Iraqis knew other Iraqis would condition their behavior on them. Now, normally when people talk about Iraqi politics and why, they, why people have turned to the mosque, turned to clerics, they say it has something to do with culture. It's charismatic authority and Muqtada the Southern, I don't know, maybe he's charismatic. Uh, or it has to do with piety or something in the culture. The argument I've given you says it had nothing to do with that. Iraqis just needed to coordinate. And these people listen to Islam, not because of the message of Islam, but because of the way Islam delivers messages. They were the in only institution on the ground that had the ability to disseminate these messages to help people coordinate, to collectively act, and mobilize. And that's why Islam emerged as the dominant player in Iraq. Literally, the clerics in Iraq hold the microphones, the megaphones. They're able to coordinate people and pick the outcomes, the positions they take. And most Iraqis, even though they may want democracy, they want to solve these big issues like the Constitution and they want stability. They want to get, the, they want to get that so they'll get the things that they really want, which are jobs, which are good futures for them and their children. And the influence of religious authorities and clerics in Iraq doesn't have much to do with the message of Islam or culture. And the rise of sectarian and these, these deep divisions that you see now in Iraq that are leading to violence don't tell us much about the underlying preferences of Iraqis. They're a result of the underlying institutional capacity of pre-war institutions to generate information and coordinate people after the war. Thank you. Now, lessons learned for a future case or ongoing case around Abbas. Uh, thank you very much, uh, and thank you, Mike, for uh, including me in this uh, very interesting panel. Uh, 
I think the question of democracy in Iran is probably the single most important question for uh, the future of the Middle East, uh, because if you look at the history of the 20th century Middle East, Iran has been, along with Egypt, the two bellwether states. What has happened in Iran has prefigured or uh, culminated trends that have happened in the Middle East for the last 100 years. Uh, but unfortunately, because of concern with the nuclear issue over the last couple of years, the issue of democracy and the fate of democracy in Iran has become eclipsed. And uh, Mike and Larry and I have written at, at least on a couple of occasions suggesting that if indeed there is to be a, a solution to the nuclear problem, the democratic uh, issue has to come to the forefront. It's not the other way around. The West, I think, has had it completely wrong over the last few years. Instead of focusing where the regime was the weakest, which was the democratic issue, they focused their policy on where the regime was the strongest, which was the nuclear issue in the sense that it was the only issue, literally the only issue in the last 10, 15 years where they had some traction amongst the people. And they let them off the hook when, where they were the weakest. But I don't think it's too late uh, in the sense that I think there is a still a very viable possibility for a democratic movement in Iran. And I don't mean a democratic movement that is installed from Washington or dictated to by Washington or selected by Washington, but I mean a democratic movement that is indigenous, that is based on the realities of Iran, that is based in a civil society in Iran, and that is based on determinations that are made by the Iranian people for the Iranian people. And there is ample evidence, I think, to suggest that Iran wants democracy, needs democracy, is capable of having democracy, and that the regime, the velayat-e uh, as we call it, the rule of the clergy, uh, which is a kind of a pseudo-totalitarian hold on the society, is really incapable of solving the society's problems. Uh, this is an economy, this is a society, this is a regime that hasn't been able to solve, for example, some of its basic, most basic problems with oil at $70 a barrel. The Iranian economy today is in a far worse shape than it was five years ago. And clearly, I think the only thing that will solve this problem will get the kind of infusion of capital that Iran needs in order to get the economy back in shape, in order to create the one million jobs a year that Iran needs, is a democratic Iran, is a, uh, the rule of law in Iran, and I think it can come. But what role can the United States play in all of this? Uh, we had one of Iran's most important dem uh, democratic activists at Stanford this summer here for about three, four weeks. We had him here twice, in fact. Uh, Mike invited him to uh, his center, gave a talk for the fellows and uh, professors, and the Iranian studies invited him to give a talk at the campus level. And uh, during the smaller discussion, somebody asked him, and this is a guy, incidentally, for some of you who might not uh, uh, remember him, this is a guy who was in prison for six years. He went on a hunger strike. His name's Akbar Ganji. Uh, <clears throat> you know, went uh, on a hunger strike for about 70 days, and went on the verge of death, and the world community came to his help, and they saved him. Uh, and he's now trying to promote the cause of democracy. And his single message, in his last few months that he's been outside Iran, four months now, is that there is a democratic movement. Don't be taken by the regime's propaganda that they have destroyed this democratic movement. And help us help ourselves. 
And when they asked him what can the United States do, uh, one of his first response was, why should the United States do anything? A question of democracy is a question of democracy for the Iranian people. They have to bring democracy to Iran. And I think the majority of Iranian genuine Democrats believe that. They believe that the question of democracy in Iran is an Iranian question. But I also think the majority of them think that the United States can play a role. It can play a constructive role if it partakes a constructive, wise, prudent policy. Uh, it hasn't had such a policy. In fact, as uh, we have argued in our two of our papers, the United States hasn't had a policy. It's been in a reactive mode for over 25 years, and the policy uh, has been changing, and the strategic vision has been lacking. And our suggestion is that in that strategic vision, the focus has to be, the central piece has to be the promotion of democracy, the building on the hope that the Iranians can deliver on their dream of becoming a democratic society, and that that democratic society will become a strategic ally of the United States, will become a strategic ally of Israel, as Iran was for much of the uh, 20th century. Iran was the first Muslim country to recognize Israel almost from its birth. Israel, Iran had relations from 1950. Iran was the first Muslim country to begin selling oil to Israel from 1955. It was the only Muslim country that did not participate in the embargo because Iranians understood that as the only non-Arab, only Shiite dom uh, prominent or majority state in the Persian Gulf and in the M Middle East, they need strategic allies and that Israel is their ally, that the United States is their strategic ally. Uh, the United States has been a very crucial pre presence in Iran for much of the 20th century. Don't look at the last 25 years. Uh, I, the three names I want to remind you of, these are the three names that have played a very important role. Uh, the first is Baskerville, the second one is Roosevelt, the third one is Jimmy Carter. Baskerville was the first American, the first to die for the cause of democracy in Iran in 1905. It was a Chicago <coughs> teacher. Kermit Roosevelt uh, undid what Baskerville had done. Baskerville created an image of the United States as the city of the, on the hill, as the ally of the Iranian Democrats. Kermit Roosevelt went to Iran in 1953 with the help of the British overthrew a democratic, populist, nationalist government of Mossadegh, and that changed U.S.'s image. Carter began the process of reversing this by promoting civil rights, by promoting human rights, and by helping undermine the despotism that existed in Iran at the time. There are many things that the United States can do today, I think, that would help the cause of democracy. Uh, the first is to have the humility to recognize that this thing has to be done in Iran, that we don't need a chalabi that these people in Washington who have their eyes on the $75 million are not the friends of the United States and they're certainly not the friends of Iran. Uh, to take a kid who's just come out of the school and put him at the char in charge of a research institute and give him money from the $75 million. I think is, you should uh, explain what that uh, is. I don't think. There is a gentleman who's come out of Iran and because he, is, uh, he served some time in prison, he absolutely, as far as I know, and as far as I have anecdotally uh, connect, collected some evidence, 
has no base amongst the Iranian Democrats. He's a very nice man. He's been some time in prison. But he's willing to say what the neocons want him to say, which is that it's good for the United States to invade Iran. And they have taken this man and suddenly now are creating an American enterprise of Iran and putting this young gentleman who hasn't published a single line in his life uh, as the head of this research institute, supposedly research institute, and giving him a chunk of the $75 million. And that is a joke. And that is a great disservice to the United States. That makes, it, uh, that makes the democracy promotion effort look like a joke to the other Iranian Democrats, to Akbar Ganji, who was in prison, to the other people who were in prison. Uh, there, there is much uh, that can be done, as I said, uh, and the most important one, I think, is to not solely focus on the nuclear issue. The nuclear issue is not going to be solved with this regime unless there is democracy in Iran. The nuclear issue will be solved in Iran only when there is a democratic government of Iran. Uh, Mike has given me the three minutes, about three minutes ago. So I will uh, stop and we'll try to catch up some of this uh, stuff in uh, question and answer if there's time. Thank you, Abbas. I really feel like we've just touched the surface of all three of these cases and your beer and wine is waiting for you in 15 minutes, but let's open the floor and I'm told we can go over a little bit of time because this is the last session before dinner at 7. So the floor is open. I have lots of questions I want to ask, but I'll defer. Michael, please. Uh, I'm interested to know what you think or how uh, the democratic voices within Iran itself can be heard and not suppressed. Uh, one of the uh, best, I think, one of the best suggestions that uh, can, one of the best uses, for example, for that $75 million is to create a kind of uh, uh, what in the terminology of the trade is called the surrogate radio and television, a radio and television program that would be the voice of the Iranian Democrats, that would allow the Iranian Democrats to break the monopoly that this regime has had, to engage in a serious discussion. For example, on the nuclear issue, there hasn't been a national dialogue in Iran about this uh, nuclear issue. The U.S. government hasn't tried to engage the Iranian people about this. The U.S. government has tried to make a deal with the regime behind closed doors, hoping that they can give them something and this regime will give up its nuclear program. It's not going to do that. The Iranian people have to be brought into this discussion. We need to bring them here to have their voice heard. I can't tell you, Mike and I, with Larry, we tried to organize a conference here Three years ago, we were bringing some of Iran's most prominent Democrats, including the Nobel Prize winner. It took us almost a year to get visas for 12 of these people. And these are people who have absolutely no interest in staying here. I mean, Ganji or Ebadi or uh, Baghi, all of these people are prominent Democrats in Iran. That's where their life is. We couldn't get them visas. We can't we eventually give them did with the help from our good friend, uh, uh, in the State Department, but it took us a long time, yes. Yeah, I mean, this gentleman popped off out of nowhere, took pity on us, literally, in an embassy in, the, in, in Dubai, and said, I hear you're trying to do this. Let us help you. Well, let's see if we can help. And he helped and saved us a lot of, but it still took us a year. Uh, we can't give a $1,000 honorarium to an Iranian Democrat who comes and gives a talk here without going through 15 different loops. Shirin Abadi couldn't sign a book contract 
she had to sue the U.S. government to be able to sign a contract to get her royalty from the U.S. And that has to change. And it can change. It's very easy, but it has to, the will has to be there. I would just add briefly that in our policy papers that Abbas and I have written together and sometimes with Larry Diamond, our, uh, the, 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 I cut him off on time, but our major uh, uh, proposal is actually to open diplomatic relations, to lift sanctions, not as a, uh, as you can tell by the way that Abbas talks, not as simply a carrot for them to deal with the nuclear issue, although we want to put everything on the table, but we think uh, given our relationships with these particular people that he's talking about, this would actually facilitate democratic change inside Iran. And and I always say, you know, we failed for, what, 27 years to either stop them from acquiring nuclear weapons, to stop them from supporting terrorist organizations, and to stop them from uh, violating uh, human rights of their citizens. We, you know, pretty bad record. Let's, why don't we, why don't we listen to these folks that spent many years in jail uh, on behalf of the ideas of democracy? Sir. You've heard this morning about the desirability of initiating relations between the United States and Iran. And I was wondering what you might think would be some talking points that our people could make to uh, facilitate the uh, uprising or at least the rising in power of the democratic people who are seeking democracy. As, again, as Mike said, what we have suggested in these papers is that what the United States should do in these negotiations it is to put everything on the table. Direct <laughs> negotiations, yes. But at all times, the U.S. has to be clear that it's going to continue its support for the Iranian human rights activists, that they shouldn't make a deal. That's, I think, the single most often question that I am asked from people inside Iran. Mike is asked from people from inside Iran who come here. Is the U.S. going to make a deal with these mullahs over the heads of the Iranian democratic movement? If we can convince them, and they know, Gashbar Ganji says to the U.S. government in his open letter to the U.S. government, he published it in Washington Post. He says, we want you to establish relationship, but we don't want you to forget about us. Make that as part of the bargain at all times. Yes, sir. Mark Ivins, there have been calls for reform in Iran um, by clerics and also by students. And you know, most recently in the years past, uh, student calls for reform have been suppressed by the Zipolahi or the Pataran. Um, I'm just wondering how you see change of calls for reform or peaceful reform take root. Please, please. Uh, Unless David wants to answer. <laughs> please. You know, the, the democratic <clears throat> movement in Iran is not based in one person or one idea. The idea that this was all Mr. Khatami's doing, and because he's now been undone, that movement is lost, or the fact that Iranian youth are now disheartened, and they are. The fact that a large number of them are Drug addicts, there are. Iran has 7 million, 7 million heroin and opium addicts. This regime is criminally complicit in allowing this uh, drug addiction uh, to fester in Iranian society. But at the same time, I think if there is one moment when people think that this regime's ability to kill and harm them has been diminished, what happened in uh, 
Ukraine and other places where Mike has written about, I think will happen in Iran. I have absolutely no doubt because people wanted, people needed. I mean, there's no other way to solve these people's problems. You get this. Uh, let me just give you one quick example. Iran is one of the biggest oil producing countries in the world. It imports between 40 to 60% of its daily use of gasoline. They haven't been able to attract enough investment to start the Iranian refineries to bring them back to 1979 level. That is going to require $600 billion investment. Who is going to make that investment if Ahmadinejad is the president? They don't have enough. They don't have enough. They got $50 million. And of that $50 billion, they give about 35 to $40 billion of it back in subsidies, subsidizing gasoline, for example, subsidizing sugar, for example, and subsidizing their supporters. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they're not reinvesting. They're, they're using rents for other pernicious things. If I could just say one other thing, if my voice will allow me. Um, I think it's important for Americans, for all of us, because we're not just Americans, but um, to understand why Ahmadinejad won this last election. Because the conventional wisdom is that this is a return of the uh, revolutionary ideology and the, the revolutionary state. In fact, one of our colleagues in this conference said that uh, uh, at another panel. And that's just wrong. That's a really uh, superficial analysis of what's going on inside Iran. Ahmadinejad won as a protest vote against the status quo. And he ran against Mr. Rafsanjani in the second ballot, who is the epitome of the status quo inside Iran. What he said subsequently about Israel uh, it was nothing. He said none of that during the campaign. And at my prediction and Abbas's prediction, and you should take his prediction, not mine, uh, is that if he does not deliver on the bread and butter issues that he ran on, he too will be the next uh, person where an anti-status quo vote will push him out. Second thing I would say is if you look comparatively at Iran, this is you know just what causes democratization, what are, what are factors that facilitate it. They've got a lot going for them. They have a very uh, uh, urban and literate population. They have a fairly high level of economic development compared to non-democracies. These are, these are things that we know comparatively are positive for democratization. Uh, only I think Russia uh, Singapore, Russia, and maybe Kazakhstan now are countries with higher PPI rates that are still Before democracies. Before, okay. <clears throat> Third, the borders of their state are where really well-defined. It is not a state like Iraq where a bunch of outsiders defined their borders for them 100 years ago. This is a country with 2,500 years of history. And fourth, the revolutionary uh, team that created the Islamic Republic is totally bankrupt. Uh, when I was there a couple of years ago, I've lived in the Soviet Union, I've lived in communist Poland, um, and the, my overwhelming impression going around meeting people, first of all, they really, really wanted to interact with me as an American. Uh, I, was, I was with a, a group of German parliamentarians, and it was downright embarrassing how little attention the Iranians, I'm not talking about the professional people, let alone the non-professional, but the professional people didn't care about the Germans, no offense to any Germans here, uh, but they wanted to interact with Americans. 
That's the way it was in the Soviet Union in 1985. That's the way it was in Poland in 1986, 87. And second, this, this dual life, right? That formally on the street, you pay abeyance to the rules of the revolutionaries. And the minute you close the door, the alcohol comes out, the scarves comes off. That's exactly what Poland felt like in 86. That's exactly what the Soviet Union was like in the late 1980s. And that gives me, in terms of the structural things, hope that you know the, the democratic can go. Uh, I've been in the back and then here. One, two, and three, I think those will be left. And, and I think we'll gather all the questions and then respond, okay, because we're getting close Can to time. Yes, good question for both David and Abbas, please. Um, I have a question on Russia. <clears throat> um, Thank you. <laughs> it still matters. Last question here. The, the, didn't the mullahs invalidate about 2,000 people who wanted to run for different offices? And that's what would make this not a democracy. I mean, that's oh, it's not a democracy, yeah. Yes, yeah, you're absolutely, that's an empirical question. That's, you're absolutely right. And it is not a democracy. Sergey, because you've traveled far, I'll let you have one last question. He came all the way from Moscow to be here, so. Why don't we go this way, Catherine Abbas, David, and myself. I'll okay. go last. Okay. Um, with respect to Putin pulling back now to lay a better foundation for democracy, I suppose that would probably be a, the, the most optimistic view of, of what he's been doing. And the question is, when when does that stop? Um, I um, I think it, the the sort of dis, the particularly discouraging thing is that it's. Um, he hasn't built institutions to actually govern the country. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring up the size of Russia is because it's a very hard place to govern. Um, there are 89 provinces um, spanning you know, 11 time zones. Um, there are 89 <coughs> regional governments to deal with. And there are you know, hundreds of little oligarchs surrounding those regional governments. He hasn't made any effort. I mean, even good authoritarians build institutions that can uh, link the central government to uh, the periphery, to, to state-level governments. 
He hasn't done any of that. He doesn't belong to a political party. There's a political party he favors. Everything is done personalistically and through personal ties, and that makes relationships very, very malleable. It's a very difficult way to govern a 21st century economy in a 21st century state. So that I find worrisome, that the state is, is still weak. That's not a solid foundation to build anything, authoritarianism or democracy. Second, I don't think democracy was really tried properly in Russia. I mean, he really didn't take advantage of the accountability function that, for example, democratic institutions like political parties in a competitive party framework um, could, um, could afford. Um, so he has to therefore negotiate bilaterally with pretty much every regional government uh, on tax revenues. And this is, again, a tremendous drag. Eventually, it'll be a big drag on the economy when, to get to Sergei's question, oil revenues decrease. And, and what if oil prices go down? Unfortunately, I don't think that's <laughs> going to happen in the near term. Um, but I think in Russia, actually, I've been thinking about this with, uh, with uh, Russian, another Russian economist that we have uh, here at Stanford. Um, one of the things that's striking, too, about Putin is there really hasn't been a ton of microeconomic reform, considering all the authority he alleges that he has over uh, politics there and over economics there really has not been wide-ranging microeconomic reform. There haven't been the number of bankruptcies you'd expect given the beautiful bankruptcy law. And I would turn back to, again, you know, uh, uh, ineffective state and state weakness. So um, I think there's a, an illusion there that he's governing and he's a strong man and he's got everything under control. But in fact, I think that it's kind of a Potemkin village in, in the sense that um, there aren't strong institutions, and so I don't, I don't see how this can be, you know, kind of building a nice, solid foundation before we move to democracy. I don't think the foundation is very solid for anything, authoritarianism or democracy. Abbas? Uh, in terms of uh, uh, Lebanon, uh, when uh, the war occurred, I was watching the Iranian media, and the, the way they covered it was really very interesting. In the first couple of uh, about 10 days, they said nothing about the war and about Iran's relationship with Hezbollah. They covered it very low key. Once it became clear that Hezbollah is going to survive and is going to emerge as more powerful than it was before, then they unleashed this campaign telling the Iranians the role that Iran has had in creating Hezbollah, training Hezbollah, arming Hezbollah. They literally talked about, they published a hitherto unpublished uh, Nasrallah, uh, Sheikh Nasrallah's uh, interview where he says, I came to Khomeini in 1982 and Khomeini says, go create the Hezbollah, we'll give you everything you want. And, and then they chronicled how they have really helped support them, trained them. Uh, one of their ambassadors said that we took uh, three, uh, 30 groups of 300 each and we took them to Iran and we trained them in military warfare and sent them back to them. So there is now much evidence indicated by the regime itself that Hezbollah was very much their creation and they have contributed a great deal to it. The missiles, they bragged about giving 10,000 missiles in a conference recently in Tehran. One of the officials of the regime bragged about, about this. In terms of Iraq, uh, again, uh, there are several levels where this regime is very active in Iran. One is sending intelligence agents. It is estimated to be anywhere from 15,000 to 30,000. They brag themselves of having 30,000 forces, in, uh, agents they call them, in one place in Tehran newspaper recently. They have 
hundreds of thousands of people who have traveled, literally, this is no exaggeration. There is a film, a documentary called Pilgrim that was made in Iran, and it's about a small town on the border of Iran and Iraq. In the first three months after the fall of Saddam Hussein, it says 300,000 people crossed that border alone, illegally. They just opened the border and everybody passed, and after a while they came back and tried to get licenses. How many of these people were agents? Nobody knows. Uh, how many of them were pilgrims? Nobody knows. The Iranians have been buying extensively property in Iraq, in, in Najaf, in Karbala, in all of these places. So I think they're in a very, very strong position. They took Muqtada Sadr back there. Uh, the Iraq, the, you know, the group by Hakim is their creation. Hakim's group was in Iran. They created the Bad Brigade. They trained the Bad Brigade, and the Bad Brigade went to Iran, to Iraq, basically trained from Iran, and they're now establishing ties with uh, Muqtada Sadr as, as well. In terms of civil society, you're absolutely right. These regimes know very well that these civil societies are dangerous. In fact, Khamenei, a year and a half ago, organized a research group. This I know for a fact, because one of the people who participated in it told me. Uh, and he brought in some of the social scientists and said, I want you to study all the color revolutions and tell me all the stages of this, uh, how it unfolded, so that they can sort of abort the process and see the early signs. So they work at this very methodically. But as Mike said in a meeting we had just in a talk he was giving just two nights ago. Where I lost uh, my voice. Uh, if, where he <coughs> lost his voice. That despots always make a mistake. The good thing about despots is that they're invariably stupid and they invariably make one mistake. And I think in the case of Iran, there's no doubt that I think they will make that mistake. And if oil prices go down, that is the ultimate thing that can bring this regime down. If oil prices go down to 30, this regime tomorrow can't pay its bills. Literally, it cannot pay its daily bills. It cannot sustain the, uh, the subsidies at the level that they are. And I think that could have very, very unexpected consequences. David. Uh, on the issue of Iranian influence in Iraq, uh, there's a country that has over 150,000 troops in Iraq, probably another 200,000 unofficial troops in Iraq, has spent billions and billions of dollars trying to, uh, trying to exert influence in Iraq and has half of the, more than half, probably 80% of the politicians in Baghdad on their payroll, and that's the United States. And we can't get the Iraqis to do what the hell we want them to do. Somehow we think with the Iranians with a fraction of the manpower, a fraction of the intelligence agencies, remember the, the U.S., the U.S. intelligence apparatus in Iraq is the largest since, uh, since Vietnam. It's massive. We can't get them to do anything. Iraqis, domestic politics and intra-Iraqi politics drives what Iraqis want. And the idea that Iran, with a fraction of the money, a fraction of the security, real, no, no real language ability, right? Farsi is not Arabic, and there's a lot of mistrust, obviously. Uh, same religion but very different structure how they view that religion. The idea that Iran pulls all the strings in Iraq, I think, is a myth. And I think the Iranians will find it just as difficult as we have to get the Iraqis to do what they want them to do. Um, can the United States promote democracy? Um, I know the Arab world, and not in the foreseeable future. The, the, the terms, Iraq, you know, it has, it, has, it has the most liberal constitution, if it mattered, in the Middle East. Um, it's one of the few countries in the Middle East, in the Arab world at least, where you see rotation of power. We actually saw Ayat Alawi, and then you saw uh, Jafari give up power. Um, but the media has portrayed 
democracy uh, with America too closely now, and it's too linked with America right now. And the U.S. Uh, U.S. attention to Democrats in the Middle East is the kiss of death. If you bring them to America, they're they're completely delegitimized and don't have much influence there at all. And before he was famous for the clash of civilizations, Sam Huntington was famous, at least in political science circles, for arguing that what matters more than the then the, the type of governance is the degree of governance, and that's what matters in the Middle East now to most, to most Arabs. Um, oil prices, I don't think oil prices matter that much at all. I mean, if you look at one of the few things we know about the effect of oil on democracy is that it's not a very good relationship. And countries that have a lot of oil simply have very little chance of, of becoming democracies. And the only, the best analogy statistically you have for places like Iraq and Iran, the likelihood of being democracy tends to be Nigeria, which isn't the, the model of a, of a stable democracy. So it's not just the price of oil, it's the presence of oil that is a real detriment. And the U.S. Well, let me, let me just say in conclusion, I'm not going to try to answer Sergey's question. I put up a slide instead because I can't talk. But what I want to do say is in tackling this problem, I hope what you've heard from this panel and really from the whole day is that the first step in tackling a serious problem is to understand it. And when we're talking about this particular question about democracy promotion and dealing with other countries, I think the tragedy of American foreign policy has been our, our shallow and facile understanding of places that we are trying to transform. Catherine pointed out that I was one of these democracy zealots in the Soviet Union uh, two decades ago. I was. Uh, and, but the only reason I was hired was because I knew the country. I knew nothing about democracy. Um, we oftentimes, and we were there with lots of economists, some of them are our colleagues here, who know nothing about Russia. And it led to lots of lots of mistakes. And then we've repeated that process, Iraq being the most obvious case for our panel, but I could give you 10 more cases if we had a lot of time. Uh, the point is, we're going to be involved in the world for the foreseeable future. So if you think that we're not going to be involved in the internal affairs of other countries, you don't understand American history and you don't understand American power. My plea, therefore, as somebody uh, in, involved in this, is we just simply have to, I always end all of my talks on this, with the last word, which is we've got to treat this like an analytic problem that we treat all other social science problems in the university. I've just spent the last five of the last eight years living in Washington, not here. And I came back to Stanford uh, just this summer because I decided at the end of the day that the only place you can actually do serious analytic work is being, being, having a foot here. And I think the day that we've had here today demonstrates that 100%. I mean, it has just been fantastic, the kind of knowledge that we have here at FSI and at the university. The thing we don't do well is we don't interface with some of our government officials who I see uh, sitting in the couple, the first two rows and translating, the, the, you just heard it, right? Three excellent people that know their stuff that has real implications for policy going forward. And I hope at FSI and at CDDRL that we take on that challenge, that we don't just sit here and talk about how stupid everybody else is, but we try to help them when they do make these kinds of decisions so that we don't keep making the same mistakes over and over again. On that, please get a drink and thank my panel.
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.